In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and God, Amen. Let's start by introduction to Psalm 118. Psalm 118 has no title, and there is no name of its author. But we believe that the author of Psalm 118 is David. Why? Because in Azra, book of Azra, chapter 3, verse 10 and verse 11, this psalm, Psalm 118, was sung, was chanted at the founding establishment of the second temple after they returned from captivity. And when they sang it, they attributed to David. So in the book of Azra, this psalm is attributed to David. That's why we believe that this psalm is written by David. Also, the psalm carries the spirit of David. Others think it is written after captivity, but since in the book of Azra it's mentioned David, then this is not right. The psalm seems to describe David or some other man who was appointed by God to a high and honorable office in Israel. Meaning, David refers to David, but also refers to the Messiah himself. So it is a messianic psalm. The theme of this psalm, it is a temple song. So people chant it when they are in the temple, in worship. A thanksgiving for recent deliverance. So when they gather in the church, they give thanks to God for his deliverance. The psalmist praises God for his delivery from evils, evils around him, puts his whole trust in God, and prophesies the coming of Christ. That's why I told you it is a messianic psalm. In terms of its occasion, this psalm is used to be chanted in the Feast of Tabernacles, as we read in Nehemiah chapter 8. But it is written by David, as we agreed, mainly after his kingdom is established, after the death of King Saul, and all the tribes declared David to be their king. So he chanted this psalm. And after he brought the ark of the Lord back to the city of David. That's why he invited his friends to join with him not only in a cheerful acknowledgement of God's goodness that he delivered him from all these evils, but in a believing expectation of the promised Messiah. So this psalm, they celebrated the deliverance of David and the establishment of his kingdom, but also in a prophetic way, they celebrated the coming of the Messiah. It is very manifest that the psalmist had a prophetic view of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we see in the New Testament, they quoted this psalm several times. For example, we have quotation in Hebrew chapter 13, verse 6, in Mark chapter 12, verse 10 and 11, in Acts chapter 4, verse 11, 1 Peter 2, verse 7, Mark chapter 11 and verse 9. So many quotation in the New Testament, which means this psalm is a prophetic psalm about the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Even the Lord himself quoted verse 22 of this psalm about himself. In Matthew chapter 21, verse 42, Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scripture? Where in the scripture? In Psalm 118. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. This is verse 22 from Psalm 118. Also the multitudes on Hosanna Sunday, Palm Sunday, when they received the Lord Jesus Christ on his triumphant entry to Jerusalem, cried out verse 25 and 26 from this psalm, when they said, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. These words in Matthew 21 verse 9 are quotation from Psalm 118 verse 25 and 26. And also we quote verse 26 in every divine liturgy in the introduction of the gospel when Abuna reads and says blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is taken from Psalm 118. So this psalm was a liturgical one and also we used it in the liturgy until now. And as a liturgical psalm there is part chanted by the leader or the priest and part chanted by the congregation. As in our liturgy, Abuna chant parts and the people respond. And this psalm was evidently intended to be sung by the procession of the worshippers on their way to the temple. When they went to the temple on the Passover or other festivals to worship the Lord, they did a procession and this psalm is chanted in the procession. For example, in every divine liturgy, we chant verse 24. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Alleluia, my baby. It chanted in every divine liturgy. And also this is the psalm of the Feast of Resurrection. In the liturgy of the Feast of Resurrection, that is the psalm of the gospel. So as I told you, it is a liturgical psalm. Also, as I told you, there are six psalms called Egyptian Halil Psalms from 113 to 118. So this Psalm 118 is the last psalm of the six Egyptian Halil Psalms. And I explained Egyptian because it celebrated the Exodus from the land of Egypt. And they used to recite it mainly when they celebrate the Passover and other major Jewish festivals. And as I told you, the Lord definitely chanted this psalm on Covenant Thursday. And they used to recite Psalm 113 and 114 before at the beginning of the service. And they conclude 115 to 118 at the end of the service. So two psalms in the beginning and four psalms at the end. This psalm written by David, so it's called David's psalm, but also it's called Jesus' psalm. Why? This psalm actually is the triumph song of our Lord Jesus Christ. When we study it, we will see how can we apply every single verse to the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the ideal servant, the perfect priest, the leader of the people. The word of this psalm 
are the words of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. These words meant so much to the Lord Jesus Christ, especially he chanted them on the night in the upper room before his crucifixion. As I told you, verse 24 to 26, this is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad on it. It's used in prayer of the offering of the Lamb every Sunday and every liturgy in the Coptic Church. And the same verses are prayed as part of the Son of the Liturgy of the Feast of Resurrection. Also, in the second day of the Feast of the Cross, we celebrate the Feast of the Cross three days in September. In the second day, this psalm also is read based on the fact that the cross is seen as a glorification for the name of the crucified Jesus Christ. So we celebrate the victory that he accomplished on the cross and we say this is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And we use in the second day of the Feast of the Cross, verse 15, the voice of rejoicing and salvation is in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. And also verse 28, you are my God and I will praise you. You are my God and I will exalt you. Also in the Agbeya, in the 11th hour of the Agbeya, we pray this psalm. The first psalm in the 11th hour of the Agbe is 117. Second psalm is 118. Why we pray it in the 11th hour? At this time, actually, as I explained, the body of the Lord Jesus Christ was taken down from the cross. So here, actually, the church celebrates the victory. Because at this hour, Satan was bound. And at this hour, the Lord descended into Hades. And he bound Satan. And he took the captivity captives and he transferred them to the paradise of joy and he opened the door of paradise of joy so it is a psalm of victory psalm of the triumphant savior of the world the psalm is 29 verses 1 to 4 praising god for his great mercy 5 to 18 relying on god the savior how we should trust god only not men 19 to 29, the song of the great deliverer. We will take some verses only today, not all of it. 1 to 4 are repetition, but he is calling different group of people to praise God. Verse 1, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good and his mercy endures forever. So he's calling all the people to give thanks to God. Why? Because God is good and his mercy endures forever. Then he is calling Israel. Let Israel now say, his mercy endures forever. Then he is calling the house of Aaron. Let the house of Aaron now say, his mercy endures forever. Then he is calling those who fear the Lord. Let those who fear the Lord now say, his mercy endures forever. In the beginning, he called all the people to give thanks to God, for he is good and his mercy endures forever, then he called on Israel, house of Aaron, and those who fear the Lord. So the psalm begins by a collective thanksgiving, said by the whole congregation, all the people, with the spirit of joy, 
giving thanks to the Lord for the riches of his mercy. The whole congregation stand calling the priestly house of Aaron, led the house of Aaron, and all who fear the Lord to give God thanks for his abundant and forever enduring mercies. So many of the Psalms call upon God's people to thank him. But this Psalm opens with a heart-spirited call indicated by the word O. Many Psalms start by giving thank, give thanks to God. But this Psalm starts by O, give thanks to God. The word O, as if I am, I am calling for the people with zeal, with fervent spirit, O God is worthy to be praised. So O, let us all praise him. God's goodness is so great and apparent that it deserves fervent, passionate thank is giving from all of us. So David invites all to praise God and give a reason for their doing so. And the reason is one word, he is good. Nothing shorter than this, he is good. At the same time, more exalted. You cannot find any definition more powerful than he is good. Nothing more powerful, exalted, or uplifting, or holy than the word good. Why? St. Augustine explained it in a beautiful way. St. Augustine says, The praise of God could not be expressed in fewer words than these, for he is good. I see not what can be more solemn than this brevity, since goodness is so uniquely the quality of God. We cannot say about anybody he is good except God. Our goodness is relative, but the perfect goodness is only on God. To the extent the Son of God, Jesus Christ himself, when he was addressed by someone, a good master, the rich man who, when he came to the Lord and told him, good master, what shall I do to enter the kingdom of God? And in his mind, he is looking to the Lord Jesus Christ, considering him as just a human being. So the Lord replied and he told him, Why do you call me good? There is none good but one, that is God. So the Lord Jesus Christ said, No one can be described as good except God only. So what the Lord Jesus Christ was saying to the rich man, if you wish to call me good, then you need to recognize me as God, not just as a human being. And this reason that he is good is more than enough to give thanks to God. Goodness is his essence. Goodness is his nature. Therefore, he is always to be praised, whether we are receiving anything from him or not. Praise is different than thanksgiving. Thanksgiving, when we receive some, something from God, we give thanks to Him. But praise, we praise Him for who He is. For He is good and mercy endures forever. It is such goodness only that deserves to be praised. But David adds, His mercy endures forever. To show that God in His action, why He said He is good, because part of his goodness 
that his mercy endures forever. That's why he is deserving praise. For the wretched and the ungodly have no better way of coming to the knowledge of God's goodness than through his mercy. If God is not merciful to the ungodly, to the sinners, to the wretched, how these people would know the goodness of God? But because he is merciful, that's why these people can know the goodness of God and believe in him. So only through his mercy, the the rich people and the ungodly and those who do not fear God, they will know his goodness and they will repent and believe in him. His mercy that created us, redeemed us, protect us and will crown us at the end of the days. That's why he said his mercy endures forever. The Psalms begins and ends with this declaration, His mercy endures forever. And the last verse of this Psalm, His mercy endures forever. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His mercy endures forever. So the first verse is the same like the last verse of this Psalm. And the Lord Jesus Christ sang these words on Covenant Thursday, His mercy endures forever. He did it with complete knowledge that the endurance of God's mercy would be tested to the utmost in the work to come the next day at the cross. Because they humiliated the Lord Jesus Christ. They slapped him. They spat on his faith. They crucified him. And how God endured all of this? Because he is good. Because his mercy endures forever. If God is not merciful, all these people would be consumed by, by fire in less than one second. But God endured all this because his mercy endures forever. Then three groups are called on, Israel, house of Aaron, and those who fear the Lord. He invites first Israel to remember God's work with them, his mercy endures forever, and to offer him a sacrifice of thanksgiving because God set them free from the bondage of Pharaoh and brought them to the promised land. Also, he invites the whole house of Israel first, because the apostles are descendants of Israel. Peter, Paul, James, John, Andrew, all of them are descendants of Israel, and they were the first believers in, in Christ. That's why he said, let the house of Israel said his mercy endures forever. Why he started by Israel? Because the apostles are Israelites and they are the first people who believed in Christ. After this, he invites the house of Aaron. Who is the house of Aaron? The priests. Because God has chosen them for priestly work. And God made miracles for them. For example, when they offered sacrifices, fire descended from heaven and consumed the sacrifice. When Korah, Dathan, and Abiram tried to took priesthood by force, the earth opened up. When God actually said to Moses, take rods from different tribe to show you which house I chose for priesthood, the rod of Aaron blossomed. So there are countless miracles God did for the house of Aaron, 
That's why he's asking the house of Aaron to praise God and to say his mercy endures forever. St. John Chrysostom says, here he invites the priest as a distinct group to singing of praises, showing to what extent the priesthood outrank others. Some think that he puts the name of house of Israel in the second place after Israel. Why? Because we said Israel represents the apostles. Then after Israel come the priest, uh, as we read in Acts chapter 6, and great many of the priests were obedient to faith. So they believed in Christ after the apostles. Then at the last, the third group, the fearer of God. At last, the psalmist invites those who fear the Lord, the real Israel, the true worshippers of God, to praise him. Some believe that this group points not only to Israel, but also to the Gentiles who believed and united with the rising church, and thus invites the Holy Church, formed from the Jews and Gentiles, to praise God. And some commentators think this suggests that the psalm was written with distinct part meant for different group of congregation. Israel, house of Aaron, fearer of the Lord. Verse 5, I called on the Lord in distress. When we read these verses, think about Jesus and about David. David is saying, I called on the Lord in distress. And the Lord Jesus, like in Gethsemane, he said, I called on the Lord in distress. The Lord answered me and set me in a broad place. The never-ending mercy of God was shown when the Lord answered the psalmist's cry of distress. God answered by setting the psalm in a secure, broad place where he could confidently stand. He answered me and set me in a broad place, means a secure place. If he had given an example of the divine mercy in him who was in great dangers, but imploring God protection and help, he answered him and set him in a broad place. After he said his mercy endures forever, now he's giving an example that I was in great danger, I was in great distress, and I asked God, and he delivered me, and he set me in a broad place. God not only delivered him, delivered him is one action, but placing him in a secure place is another action. You can deliver people from distress, but maybe you cannot secure a safe place for them. God secured a place free from all persecution. This is applicable to David, as I told you, because David faced so many tribulations, and God delivered him from all his troubles and placed him at the end on the throne of Israel and gave him rest from all his enemies. But also, as I told you, this refers to the Messiah and his distresses in the Garden of Gethsemane, as we read in Luke chapter 22, starting from verse 39. He was withdrawn from them about a stone throw. And he knelt down and prayed, saying, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. 
But Jesus was glorified. He set me in a broad place. He ascended to heaven and he is seated at the right hand of God. Also, this verse applies to the church. Many people, believers, were persecuted and killed, martyrs and confessors, and God put them in a broad place in heaven. So the church faced many persecution from which she was delivered. Praying is necessary, but nothing is more proper than to call upon the Lord in the time of distress. As St. James said, if you are in affliction, pray. If you are rejoicing, sing to the Lord. If you remember when King Herod threw Peter into prison, as we read in Acts chapter 12, Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. God heard the prayer of the church, and when Peter had come to himself, he said, Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and has delivered me from the hand of Herod and for all the expectation of the Jewish people. He was saved from the depth of tribulation to the fullest extent of peace and consolation. God sent an angel, opened the door of prison, and he went to the upper room. That's why in verse 6, he said, The Lord is on my side. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? If, if we know that God is with me, who can be against us? The Lord is with me. He is my helper and defense. The never-ending mercies of God was shown by God's open favor and help to the one who called upon him. God is on the side of his people to fight their battles for them, to support them under all their afflictions, to supply all their needs, to deliver them from all evil. So David, or all of us, God's people, being taught by experience, exult in great confidence, the Lord is for me, the Lord is on my side. Knowing that God is on our side, we live free from fear. We don't fear men, because what can man do to us? But David did not say, the Lord is my helper, I shall suffer no more. No, he did not say this. He knows that while we are sojourners here on earth, we will suffer from our daily enemies. But David said, the Lord is on my side, I will not fear. Even if I suffer, I will not fear. What can man do to me? I will not be troubled in regard of any difficulty I may face on earth. For as the Lord Jesus Christ told us, and I say to you, my friends, don't be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that, have no more that they can do. Because the Lord turned all things to good, as St. Paul said in Romans 8, all things work together for good to those who love God, those who are called according to his person. That's why St. John Chrysostom says, he did not say, I shall not suffer, but he said, I will not fear what can man do to me? Meaning, even if I should suffer, I'm not afraid. Which is St. Paul said, if God is for us, 
who can be against us. Verse 7, the Lord is for me among those who help me. Yes, there are many people helping me, but if God is not there, their help is vanity. The Lord is for me among those who help me. Therefore, I shall see my desire on those who hate me. Those who help me, the psalmist had friends who stood by him. He relied indeed on their aid, like Jonathan, for example, but not on their aid without God. The Lord is among them. The psalmist had nothing to fear even for those who hated him, because God is on his side. St. John Chrysostom said, Do you see him not taking revenge or using retribution? David had many opportunities to kill King Saul, but he did not revenge. He left it to God, leaving to God that take vengeance on his enemies. That's why he shared with us his experience in verse 8. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. It's better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. In verse 8, he said, man. Verse 9, he said, even in princes, it's better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. It's better to trust in the Lord. So this is stated apparently as a result of his own experience, how God delivered him so many times from very sure death. Saul and the army were after David to kill him. He had found people weak and faithless. He had not found God so. David knew by experience, you cannot trust people. He trusted King Saul and he trusted Achitophel, one of his most prudent ministers, beside several others, and all failed him. But he never trusted in God and God failed him. Always God delivered him. Therefore, he says strongly, it's better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. The psalmist draws a useful counsel from what he said on placing all our hope in God, not in man, even if they are powerful, even if they are the princes. Neither common man or princes among men could help as God can help us. Because princes are only men. And many times they are faithless, deceitful, as other men. So it's better to trust God. God is always able and willing to help those who put their trust in him. Even if the princes are faithful, but one day they will die. And any person trust in them, his trust will be in vain. Men are unable, or even when they are able, they are influenced by various desires and not always willing to offer any help. St. John Chrysostom said such comparison between trusting God, it is suited for man's wretchedness because we are ungodly, not faithful. That's why it's better to trust in God than to trust in men. He explains that people are well acquainted with the power of man. We see the power of people here on earth. We see it by our eyes, and especially the power of princes and rulers. 
While God's power is hidden, we cannot see it by on our eyes. And we neither see it, sometimes we don't reflect on it. And many of us, sometimes they don't believe in God's power and God's greatness. That's why I think David wanted to say, it is good to hope in the Lord and it is evil to hope in man. As Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 17 verse 5, Cursed is the man who trusts in man. Cursed is the man who trusts in man. Now he's explaining why trusting God is better than trust in princes like King Saul. He said, All nations surrounded me, but in the name of the Lord I will destroy them. They surrounded me, all nations. Yes, they surrounded me, but in the name of the Lord I will destroy them. They surrounded me like bees, and they were quenched like a fire of thorn. Why? For in the name of the Lord I will destroy them. He repeated they surrounded me several times. All nations surrounded me, but in the name of the Lord I will destroy them. They surrounded me, yes, they surrounded me. Third time, three times so far, but in the name of the Lord I will destroy them. They surround me fourth time like bees, but they were quenched for like a fire of sword. For in the name of the Lord I will destroy them. In the name of the Lord I destroy them was repeated three times in verse 10, verse 11, and verse 12. So, from his own example, the psalmist shows the advantage of putting one's trust in God. For it was not once, but several times he surrounded me. He was surrounded by most powerful enemies on all his side. And in a most, in a very miraculous way, God rescued him. If we refer the passage to David, everyone knows how often he was overpowered by King Saul. And a very huge army, but in a miraculous and unexpected way, God delivered him. That's why he said, they surrounded me. Yes, they surrounded me. So the idea is repeated for emphasis, and it signifies the frequency and the strength of the attacks and their adamant persisting in killing him. But in the name of the Lord, I will destroy them. Three times was repeated which also repeated to show the strength of his faith and its endurance, despite the numerous enemies and their violent effort against him, but he trusted in God. So, again, these verses can apply to the Lord Jesus Christ, knowing that only when the Lord chanted this psalm on Covenant Thursday, his Lord foreknew that only a few hours later he would be truly surrounded by those who mock him, torture him, kill him, and with no doubt a multitude of nations surrounded him. And here the, there is imagery of bees surrounded him. And this imagery taken from Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 44. So his enemies were in great numbers as a swarm of bees being irritated and will fly upon people with great fury. They surrounded me like bees. In the Septuagint and in the Agbeya, bees around honey. Can you imagine bees around honey, how they look like? Leave no chance of escape. 
and to show their fury, he said they were quenched like fire of thorns. So they were like fire in thorn, but God quenched, quenched them. So their fury dies away and goes out suddenly like a fire burned among thorns, which blazes up with vast heat and noise, but in short time dies down and disappears. So the psalmist uses expressive imagery to show how he exalts the protection of the divine hand that can protect the just and the righteous even when invaded by cruel adversaries. St. John Chrysostom says he did not simply say they surround me, but he said like bees, unlike fire of thorn, suggesting by bees the intensity of their anger, and by the thorn the intolerance character of the anger. So they were angry and intolerant, who after all will ex- who after all will extinguish fire in the middle of thorn? Who can do this except God? Yet, despite such intensity and rapidity in their being inflamed and encircling me, not only did I escape, but I even obtained vengeance. I will destroy them. God's name, invincible armor, irresistible support, drove them all off. Then, in verse 13, he spoke about his weakness to exalt God more and more. He said, you pushed me violently that I might fall, but the Lord helped me. You pushed, he's addressing the enemies. You pushed me violently that I might fall, but the Lord helped me. So having previously illustrated the multitude and the cruelty of his enemies, he now acknowledged his own weakness. Why? As being quite unable to compete with his enemies, so this deliverance is only because of God, not because of my ability, not because of my strength. Thus, God may have greater glory in the matter. So the psalmist, as if he sees the enemies before him, that's why he's talking to the enemy, you uh, pushed me. You pushed me violently. So addresses him as if the enemy is present, as if Saul in front of him, who tried to take away his life by speaking to his servant to kill him, to kill David. But the Lord helped me. This may have reference to the various dangers David had from time to time to encounter, but the Lord helped him. St. John Chrysostom says, The adversities so prevailed over me, David says, that I was close to falling and being brought down. I was pushed and driven backward, in fact, to the point of falling down. But just when I was about to be brought to my knees and laid low and all human support was despaired of, then God made manifest his assistance. Now God does this, lest anyone claim the credit for themselves. Again, this verse, as if Jesus is saying it to Judas, you pushed me to destroy me. So as if Judas to Christ, who lifted up his seal against Christ and betrayed him into the hand of his enemies. 
Also, this verse, Satan is pushing all of us violently to make us fall in sin and uh, as the members of the church. But because the Lord helped me, he chanted this beautiful song that we chant on Good Friday. The Lord is my strength and his song, and he has become my salvation. The Lord is my strength and song, and has become my salvation. We chant this, if you remember, on Good Friday. God has become my salvation. He is the source of strength to the psalmist. That's why he became my song. There is no ground of praise in anything that the psalmist has done, but all is due to God. I didn't do anything to deserve praise, but all praise belongs to God because he is my salvation. This marvelous praise is the song of victory, chanted by many prophets, like in Exodus 15 and in Isaiah 12, and also is chanted by the church, especially during Great Friday. When the Lord is our salvation, it means we put our trust for help and deliverance in none other than the Lord, because He is our salvation. He is our rest and rescue, and the author of temporal salvation spiritual salvation and eternal salvation. Those who trust in God, the voice of rejoicing and salvation is in the tents of the righteous. What they are chanting, this voice chanting what the right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The voice of rejoicing, voice of thanksgiving for salvation and deliverance, which God has done for David and for all the church. Applying verse 15 to the account of David's appointment on the throne at the establishment of his kingdom, his deliverance from Saul, his victory over all his enemies, this may mean that nothing was heard throughout the land of Israel during the enthronement of David in all the dwelling of good men except voice of joy. The reference may be also to the tent of pilgrims constructed for the feast outside Jerusalem, like the Feast of Tabernacles. They lived in tabernacles and they giving thanks to God. So that's the voice of singing at which the song was probably sung. So he seemed to connect the psalm with the Feast of Tabernacle. The word, the right hand of the Lord does valiantly is repeated in helping and assisting David, protecting him, defending him, raising him to the throne and giving him rest from all his enemies. But also it refers to the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And the right hand of the Lord is repeated three times, in verse 15 one time, in verse 16 two times. Who is the right hand of the Lord? Actually, is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the right hand of the Lord. Why he is the Lord Jesus Christ? Because the power of God is superior to all the enemies and beyond comprehension and expression. And God is able to do for his people above all what we think or ask or understand. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly is repeated several times to show how much the righteous were affected with it, protected by the right hand of the Lord. 
And it's repeated three times, referring to the Holy Trinity. And as I said, the right hand is the might and power of the Son of God, who has done his work bravely and powerfully. Why the Son of God is called the right hand of the Lord? Because God the Father made everything through the Son, so as if the Son is the right hand of God. As we read, all things were made through him, through the Son. Through him also he made the words, Hebrew 1 verse 2. Who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Arm of the Lord is a prophecy about the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Isaiah 53 verse 1. Here the right hand of the Lord has given strength in as much as is exalted. Exalted David and lowered the enemies of the David. And this can be applicable to the church, to Christ, and to David. God was exalted, his enemies were lowered. The church, God exalted the church, and our enemies are lowered. That's why in verse 17 and 18, we'll stop at verse 18. Verse 17, he said, I shall not die, but live and declare the works of the Lord. I shall not die, but live and declare the works of the Lord. Because of the protection of God, David saw that he was in danger, surrounded by enemies, sought his life, about to die, but he has the assurance that they would not be victorious. The psalmist is confident that God would keep him from death in the present crisis, and he would live to declare what God had done for him. Also, Jesus sang this song, as I told you, on Covenant Thursday. He could proclaim this confidently. The death that he will suffer on Good Friday would not have hold of him, but he will live and declare the works of the Lord after his resurrection. I shall not die, but live and declare the works of the Lord. And according to St. John Chrysostom, I shall not die, he means the other death, the eternal death. As the Lord said, he who believes in me, though he may die physically, he shall live eternally. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Last verse in our Bible said tonight, verse 18, the Lord has chastened me severely, but he has not given me over to death. So the psalmist here, although he was greatly afflicted by his enemies, but now he looked at the trial from a different perspective, at his affliction, as if it is fatherly chastisement or correction. Because the affliction that we suffer, it's by permission of God. And God used this affliction, although it's not by him, it's by our enemies, but God used it to, for our correction, for our benefit. So the psalmist understood that God had a corrective purpose in allowing the crisis. When we go through crisis, although it is not initiated by God, but God will use it for corrective purpose, to make us better people. So God will allow us to go through difficulty, but will never make the difficulty destroy us. But he has not given me over to death. The Christ will be of benefit. As St. John Chrysostom said, the psalmist not only gives thanks, but he is free 
but he is also aware of the great grace he had in falling. The psalmist did not give thanks to God because I'm free of trouble. But even in trouble, I'm giving thanks to God because I see the benefit of falling. It's corrective for me. He mentioned the advantage of trials. What in fact the Lord has chastened me, he says, this is the value of pearls that they make one bitter. He's saying God used these afflictions and trouble to make me a better person. I want just to finish half of Psalm 18. Glory be to God forever and ever. Amen.